0: I'm Michelle Harvin, and welcome to Business 2020, Foresight Through Hindsight, a podcast of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program. In this podcast series, we take a fresh look at major events in business and society over the past two decades, from the WTO protests to 9-11, from Enron to Occupy Wall Street. These events may have left the front page, but they offer important lessons for business leaders in the decades ahead. And as it turns out, the passing of time is at the center of one of the most important issues in business and society today. People sometimes say to me,
1: well, isn't it too late?
0: That's Rebecca Henderson, a professor at Harvard Business School and winner of the Aspen Institute Ideas Worth
1: Teaching Award.
0: She's describing a growing sense of desperation around climate change.
1: So, it's going to be super hard to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees. That's going to be super hard. I think you could rationally give up the hope that we could do it. But that's not a reason not to limit emissions. (laughs) The issue then becomes limiting us to 3 degrees or 4 degrees. If we heat the planet up by 6 or 7 degrees, we will almost certainly destroy our civilization, not to mention killing millions of people. So it's never too late to act. We must transform the economy. We must move to renewable sources of power.
0: The sense of urgency is driven by recent reporting on a narrowing window to take action to stave off climate change. But it's also driven by political action or inaction. In 2017, President Donald Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Global Paris Climate Agreement. Within the United States, regulations aimed at limiting emissions are also being slashed or undermined. The thing is, though, something very like this happened almost 20 years ago.
2: The Kyoto Protocol was fatally flawed in fundamental ways. We recognize a responsibility to reduce our emissions. We also recognize the other part of the story, that the rest of the world emits 80 percent of all greenhouse gases. And many of those emissions come from developing countries. This is a challenge that requires a 100% effort, ours and the rest of the world's. The world's second largest emitter of greenhouse gases is China, yet China was entirely exempted from the requirements of the Kyoto Protocol.
0: In June of 2001, five months after taking office, President Bush announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the Kyoto Protocol, a global climate agreement the prior administration had signed in 1997. The withdrawal from Kyoto signaled this new administration would take a new approach to environmental issues, one it saw as fairer to the U.S. on the international stage and better for U.S. businesses and consumers. Does that sound familiar? The parallel to today's situation with the U.S. withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords is the reason we'll be looking at the aftermath of the Kyoto Protocol. While political shifts on climate policy might have grabbed the headlines, out of the spotlight, something else was stirring. As it happened, civil society and business wound up mobilizing to keep a lot of environmental efforts going. And in one respect, they had it even harder than today. Urgency around climate was nowhere near as mainstream as it is now.
2: The notion of integrating social and environmental considerations into business was a relatively new concept.
0: That's Aaron Kramer, the president of an NGO called Business for Social Responsibility, or BSR. Aaron says that when BSR was new in the mid-1990s, its aims were unusual.
2: It was very exciting in the early days to be part of an organization that was trying to introduce a new concept and legitimize the concept with business leaders who had really thought about much more traditional measures of business success.
0: Aaron made the case with a reminder that value means more than just a profit.
2: Business delivers a huge amount of value for the world, but if it's not doing that in a way that helps people live lives, dignity that does not preserve natural resources, then we've lost the plot.
0: In 2001, Aaron moved to Paris, where he planned to build up BSR's presence in Europe. But the exit from Kyoto and then the attacks of 9-11 made his work more complicated. Aaron was appealing to shared values like human dignity to build global coalitions for change. But for some European partners, U.S. government policy was putting the very idea of shared values into question.
2: In 2002, the memory of 9-11 was still fresh. American military action in Afghanistan had just started and it was the run-up to the war in Iraq and that combined with the dismissal by the Bush administration of the Kyoto Protocol was an example of America acting alone rather than as part of a global community and that made it more difficult quite frankly and I moved to Paris at a time when there were pretty large protests in the streets of Paris. I remember sitting at a dinner of a group of business leaders in the spring of 2002, where I made the statement that I felt that America and Europe had developed on the basis of common set of values, and that idea was rejected by a lot of the Europeans who were there with me at at that dinner.
0: And yet, while the U.S. and European governments may have been divided, Aaron still succeeded in forging coalitions across business and civil society. One that got off the ground in 2003 was called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. People from dozens of countries got together to set standards for managing their oil, gas, and minerals. Aaron and his colleagues also worked on a project called the Clean Cargo Working Group, which brought giant shipping companies together to reduce their impact on the environment. So, those stalled years they were more active than a lot of us realized.
2: We saw the flowering of multi-stakeholder solutions to big global challenges, recognizing that we don't have a global governance system, but we do have global issues. You know, a few seeds were planted in the 1990s, but I think things really got momentum in the 2000s.
0: While Aaron and his colleagues took action globally in those post-Kyoto years, other people took action locally. One person watching the withdrawal from Kyoto was a Stanford Ph.D. student named Earthia Nance, who today is an associate professor at the School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University. As we heard at the start of this episode, the Bush administration had argued withdrawing from the Kyoto Protocol wasn't an end to constructive climate policy, but a promising new beginning. Earthia
3: saw things differently. Bush promised to do something about carbon, and he failed to do that. Infamously, he pulled out of the Kyoto Agreement. And then, epically, he failed during Katrina to respond and recover appropriately to that disaster.
0: And it's that second event that launched Earthia into action. In August 2005, New Orleans was hit by a storm that killed over 1,800 people. At the time of Hurricane Katrina, I was
3: at MIT, and me and some colleagues decided to go down to New Orleans to find out ways that we could contribute.
0: Earthia was profoundly affected by what she saw.
3: Well, New Orleans lost about 100,000 black residents, about a third never came back after the storm. And today, there are a lot of predominantly black and low-income neighborhoods that have not recovered.
0: Earthia's plans changed. Seeing too little help from Washington, she began a campaign to keep residents safe from toxins that had been spread in the flooding. I started
3: a nonprofit, it was called the People's Environmental Center, to deal with lead contamination. The city had been flooded for many, many weeks um, with contaminated water.
0: Earthia also began working with another nonprofit, the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, and eventually became a public official in New Orleans
3: herself. Under my direction, we wrote the first approved hazard mitigation plan for the city of New Orleans, the first sustainability plan approved by both City Council and the mayor.
0: These accomplishments are all the more remarkable when you consider them in the context of national public polling on climate and the risk to cities at the time. In an ABC News Washington Post poll taken scarcely two weeks after Katrina, just a quarter of Americans said climate change was to blame for the severity of hurricanes like Katrina. It would take a decade of storms such as Hurricane Sandy and Maria before that figure crossed above 50%. And yet, in the 2000s, with the federal government holding back and a limited sense of urgency among the broader public, individuals like Earthia were leading a way forward on climate and sustainability. The often untold story of those post-Kyoto years is that many Americans took action from the bottom up. Business, too, began on its own to commit to sustainability. And that brings us back to Rebecca Henderson. Like many other scholars, She identifies an exit from Global Climate Accords as a serious blow to sustainability around the world.
1: Many of the problems we face are global, and governments are by definition national or local. And so alone they're going to find it difficult to deal with global problems like climate change.
0: But she also stresses taking a fresh look at the most mundane actions businesses can take.
1: It was a few people saying, You know, I think we could cut our energy bills and really reduce our emissions if we change the light bulbs. I think if we thought about how we manage the transportation system and how we schedule the trucks, we could really make a difference. From today's vantage
0: point, light bulbs can seem like a small change. But Rebecca suggests shifting attitudes in business add up in time to changes in entire sectors like
1: energy. So if you think back 10, 15 years ago, no one thought that solar power or wind power could be cost competitive with fossil fuels. We're now living at a time when in many jurisdictions, the wind contracts and the solar contracts are coming in under the price of fossil fuel. I mean, this is incredible. And it happened so quickly. Partly it happened because of very significant investments by the German and Chinese governments and really subsidizing the expansion of the industry. But it also happened because purpose-driven entrepreneurs built solar and wind companies and devoted themselves to developing that technology and driving down the costs. This could have a lot of implications going forward. These trends
0: suggest businesses are going to plan around environmental issues, things like climate change,
1: even if government isn't. I think some firms can see that climate change left unchecked poses an existential threat to the long-term stability of our society and our economy. Firms in the food business in particular can see that climate change really threatens the long-term health of the agricultural supply chain consumer goods companies can see consumers getting very concerned that the products they're buying are contributing to the long-term climate risk facing the planet. And they're saying, you have to change the way you behave. This is not okay. In other
0: words, the same things we saw on a small scale after the exit from Kyoto in 2001, people and organizations taking action on their own, may be seen on a large scale in these years after the exit from Paris, announced in 2017.
2: History is repeating itself, but history is repeating itself in very vivid colors right now.
0: That's Aaron Kramer again.
2: Amidst a lot of this change, um, we've seen companies stand up and express their values more forcefully, perhaps, than they have in the past. I think that's positive. I think that will play a role in ensuring that in the United States, but also elsewhere, that we don't withdraw from the concept of shared values.
0: Today, everyone is starting from a very different baseline from the one in place when negotiators met in Kyoto.
2: Virtually every large company in the world takes an explicit, public, and to some degree systematic approach to thinking about their impact on the environment, impact on communities, and the ethical implications of the things that they're doing. So in that regard, I think we've seen a sea change in what business, how business conceptualizes its role in society over the last 25 years.
0: Rebecca Henderson says that business will be a crucial leader on the environment, giving the shifts in political
1: winds. First, big business is global and can see that these problems are global. Second, business has a lot of power to support governments in enacting regulation or to oppose those regulations. Rebecca and Aaron both stress
0: that a lot of this movement will depend as much on bottom-up action as top-down
1: action, maybe even more so. I think many people get stuck because they think that only CEOs can make the big decisions. But I think that's fundamentally wrong in so many ways. In the first place, where do CEOs get their ideas?
0: Rebecca says look at Unilever, which announced a sustainable living plan in 2010.
1: Unilever was full of small-scale local efforts to make a difference that had been started by people very much on the ground. People in the tea supply chain saying, if we don't do something sooner or later, there won't be any tea to sell. People working in other parts of the supply chain saying, whoa, we're going to run out of water. What can we do to make the way we grow P's more sustainable. And those efforts were started by people with very prosaic job titles, like purchasing manager, who thought that there might be a better way to do something and were willing to act and pull together a small group and try and make progress.
0: And Unilever's not the only example from the last decade. Chipotle built a brand on local sourcing. Starbucks has been working for more than a decade toward complete ethical sourcing of its coffee and tea supply. And Aaron points to Amazon, which was just recently prodded by.
2: A letter from, I think, three or four thousand employees of Amazon calling for that company and, and calling directly for Jeff Bezos to have Amazon set more aggressive climate goals. So we live in a world that is no longer top down all the time.
0: For Aaron, anecdotes like these are reasons for hope, even as government steps back from the Paris Agreement. Yet, Aaron is clear that businesses face a unique quandary when stepping up on climate.
2: Business leaders have to live in two different worlds. They have to live in the world which thinks ahead 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, when our energy system is going to change. But they're also living in a present where you cannot take for granted the viability of any business,
0: Still, environmental action increasingly won't be optional,
1: as Rebecca Henderson emphasizes. If the food supply is severely threatened, if we see massive sea level rises, if we see mass migration from south to north as a result of uh, continued droughts and floods, that's not going to be good for business. That's a serious problem. And so you see many businesses in many communities trying to make progress against this issue.
0: On the bright side, says Aaron Kramer, there will be huge payoffs for companies that are ahead of the pack.
2: It is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the businesses that innovate on the basis of a world being affected by climate change. The companies that can help all of us reduce waste will be hugely successful. The companies that figure out climate-smart agriculture, these are massive opportunities.
0: And Rebecca Henderson adds
1: that we can already see it paying off for a lot of businesses. Many firms are adopting ESG measures or environmental, social, and governance measures. We see that firms operating on ESG metrics are increasingly outperforming their competition.
0: So leading on sustainability is both a challenge and an opportunity for business. And for those businesses who are committed to action with foresight, what ideas might they consider to truly lead the pack? One answer comes from Earthia Nance who notes that we're seeing a shift in the terms of our debate over the environment. Going green is almost taken for granted. And that's why we're going to see the word justice come up more and more in discussions of
3: the environment. Just versus green development. These are contrasting concepts. And so the green is the mainstream concept. And it tends not to question structural inequities in general. And there's books about this. There's articles that have been written to talk about this idea of justice. So the just development approach focuses on who is being developed, whose concerns are being addressed, who gets to define the agenda of environmental concerns. Just also means consideration and representation of poor people's environmental problems. So for example, green development would hope for green jobs, whereas just development would talk about who's going to receive those jobs.
0: As Aaron Kramer points out,
2: As much as we work on distinct issues, whether it's human rights, women's empowerment, inclusive economic growth, climate change, they're ultimately all integrally related and you can't succeed on one without succeeding uh, on the others.
0: The other end note is this. As Earthia's story shows, individuals acting on their own at first can make surprisingly big things happen. Those people might be executives or they might just be concerned citizens, but movement begets movement. It's what we saw after Kyoto, and it's what we're likely to see today. Here's Rebecca Henderson with the final word.
1: Small things, they can seem so small, but you know, the way I think about this is we need an avalanche, and every single one of us can be a pebble in that avalanche.
0: Speaking of avalanches, sometimes even the most solid-looking structure can turn into a pile of rubble. In our next episode, we'll look at lessons from the rise and fall of Enron and its CEO, Jeffrey Skilling. Can we find the formula for what makes a company go bad? It was a personal tour by Jeff Skilling as we asked him to explain the way the trading operation worked and not just from a technical standpoint, but from how the money flowed and how Enron actually made its revenue and and. its profits, it was a lot of you-all-won't-understand-this. Be sure to subscribe to Business 2020 on iTunes so you won't miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. Follow the Business and Society program on Twitter at AspenBizSociety for more information on the issues discussed in this episode. Business 2020 is hosted and produced by me, Michelle Harvin, and written by senior producer Keith Schumann with input from Felicia Davis and the Business and Society team. Recorded by Ben Eiler and edited by Jesse Krinsky. Special thanks to our guests this episode, Erin Kramer, Earthia Nance, and Rebecca Henderson. You can find detailed information on the music and sound credits through the site page for this episode on the BSP website. Thanks for listening.